0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org. And so today we're going to be continuing our three-part sermon series through Exodus. We're actually going to be starting uh, the third part today, Heavenly Shadows, where we're looking at the shadows of Christ uh, through the tabernacle to the Israelites. And so today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up the word there. If you find yourself without a Bible this morning, that's okay. There should be a black Bible somewhere underneath a seat in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that Bible with you and consider that a gift. Because again, we so highly value the word and we want to be able to extend that to you. So again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. When you've gotten there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 22. Providence hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, or twined linen, excuse me, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, Goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. "'Inside and outside you shall overlay it, "'and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. "'You shall cast four rings of gold for it "'and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, "'and two rings on the other side of it. "'You shall make poles of acacia wood "'and overlay them with gold, "'and you shall put the poles into the rings "'on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. "'The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, "'they shall not be taken from it. "'And you shall put into the ark "'the testimony that I shall give you. "'You shall make me a mercy seat of pure gold.' 2 cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. One hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Y'all may be seated. Good morning. Lively crowd, love it. Uh, And a late bloomer as well. Uh, My name is Ty Gaston. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And like Scott said, we're going to be continuing our trek through the book of Exodus. Uh, And we're going to be beginning the third part of our series uh, titled Heavenly Shadows. And this is where for the next 15 chapters, Moses is going to dedicate uh, all of it to this idea of one topic, and that's uh, that's the presence of God amongst us. And so I'm really excited about this next part of the series. I think it's really important, not just for the Israelites um, in their day, but it's also really important for us today as we look about, uh, we look at God's presence amongst us even now. So what I'm going to do, we have a lot of work and a lot of text to cover. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us and we will move forward. So if you would bow your heads, we'll pray. Father God, we come before you today and We just ask that you would steady our hearts, steady our minds, steady our souls. God, where busyness and restlessness, anxiety fill us, just ask that you would still those waters, bring peace, bring comfort. God, do the the work that only you can do. We can't calm our own hearts. We can't bring our own peace. It, It just doesn't work that way. God, you are the one who can still the waters. And so, God, we're desperate for you. We need you. And so, God, would you be the very air that we breathe as we approach your word? Change us. Make us more like you. God, show us that you are ferociously after our hearts, and you're willing to do anything to to bridge the gap so that way we can be near to you. God, we love you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Exodus, a lot of things have happened to the people of Israel at this moment. Uh, You've had uh, a rescue from slavery from the Egyptians. Uh, God opened the Red Sea and allowed the people of God to trek their way through it so that way they can enter in their own freedom. You've had food fall from heaven so that way they're always provided for. You have water flowing out of a rock so that way they will never be thirsty Again, they were given the law, given the Ten Commandments, so that way they would know what it means to walk in holiness and to honor God in their, with their lives. But still, still, even after receiving all of these things, still they lacked something. Uh, they lacked God dwelling amongst them. They knew God was there. They knew God had never left, at least at times. But God didn't dwell amongst his people until now. Until now, God was the the big scary voice from heaven that threw down orders and fire and food and water. But now, we're going to see God dwell amongst his people. So my hope for us today is that we see that God not only cares about the desires of us, but that he'll go at great lengths to draw our hearts closer to himself. So a cool thing about this moment is that in the chapter just before in the sermon that Court preached last week, It says that Moses enters the cloud, and another cool thing about that about Moses entering the cloud and then coming out of it is that he doesn't ever talk about what he saw. I mean, I think for us, that's the first thing we want to know about. Man, what you see? What was in there, man? What did God look like? Did you see angels? What What happened in this cloud? But he doesn't do that at all. He enters into the cloud, into the presence of God, and God gives him marching orders. And we see this starting in Exodus twenty-five, verses one through seven. It says. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense." Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. So you can learn a lot about what is important to in person by what they talk about first. Uh, for example, uh, last Friday, uh, if you don't know this uh, for me as uh, as a pastor, uh, Sunday is a workday for me. Uh, for the Sabbatarians in the room, uh, sorry to disappoint you. Uh, But Sunday is a work day for me, and Friday and Saturday is my weekend. So Friday meaning that's my Saturday. That's my first day off. It's the day I get to sleep in. I cherish Fridays. I love it. Um, But last Friday, as soon as I woke up, my wife was there uh, in front of me. And normally, what happens in this moment is she, I wake up, she says good morning, sweetie, gives me a kiss on the forehead, things like that. Not this Friday. Uh, So last Friday. The first words out of her mouth were, you miss trash day. <laughs> and if you don't know this as an adult, there's not a bigger L that you can take than missing trash day. Because it's a reminder for the next four days that you're a failure until they return. Yeah. But that's that was an important Part of our family's life for my wife that we don't miss trash day. For her, as a man, it is your responsibility to take the trash out, not only out of the house to the can, but the can to the curb. And I failed miserably. But you can tell a lot about what is important to a person by what they bring up first. Now, what does God bring up first here in this text? He brings up money and what we do with it. Now, you don't see like straight dollars and bills, but these are the valuables that they would have used to trade like currency. And I get it, sure, here we go, pastor talking about money, of course, I get it. But there has to be a reason why God decided to talk about contributions first before he even talks about where he is going to dwell. There has to be a reason for it. Because a more natural way of talking about this would have been the opposite. It would have been give instructions to build, tell Moses what to get. Moses then asks, how are we going to do all this? And he says, go take up a contribution. That's a more natural way of doing it. That's happened in other places in the Bible. When God gave a commandment to Moses to build the ark, he simply go told him to do it, and then he provided the gopher wood. And then he provided the animals, and then he provided the food. He provided afterwards, after giving the command. You also see this in Jesus feeding the 5,000. So Jesus says, we're going to feed the people and his disciples say, well, how are we going to do this? And he gets the bread and fish and he multiplies it. But that's not how this happens. It happens the opposite. He says, take up a contribution and then build. So there has to be a reason because surely God doesn't need what we have. Like if God's going to build a place for him to dwell, first of all, he's been existent for all of eternity he doesn't need a place to dwell he desires a place to dwell amongst his people he doesn't need it though and he certainly doesn't need man man man-made materials in order to build what he where he's going to be there's nothing that can contain God that way so why would God say that he has to have these things well, I believe that the Bible tells us that money or anything else we use as currency has a way of capturing the heart like nothing else. In Genesis chapter four, the commending of Abel for giving of his first fruits led to his death because Cain was jealous after being condemned for withholding. Proverbs three nine says, To honor the Lord with your first fruits. Kind of an homage to Abel. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that those that trust in riches will fall. Luke 6 says that riches have the ability to choke out the gospel seed in the believer's life. 1 Timothy 6 says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and has a way of making us live a haughty lifestyle. That if we have money, whether God-given or, well, I guess it's all God-given, but whether you acknowledge it or whether you don't, we have a way of living a haughty lifestyle if we have riches and we have to be careful of it. Mark 8 says that it's possible to gain riches in such a way that you would forfeit your soul. That's a big one. And then, lastly, Matthew chapter 6 says a couple things. The first one is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, number two, this is Jesus speaking that money can be your master. Now, this is important because Jesus doesn't mention this type of language anywhere else in the Bible. He only says that there are two things that can be your master, God, money, that's it. And he's saying here in this text in Matthew chapter six that you have to choose between the two. And so we have to start thinking about the way that we have our possessions, our resources, our money, our things. We have to start thinking about them differently in a kingdom-minded manner because if something has the potential to become our master, we need to be very careful of it. We don't want to be at this place where we have chosen the wrong master to serve. We want to be at this place where we're honoring God with what we have. And so if we're willing to be held accountable for our Bible reading, for our prayer life, for our evangelism, church attendance, home group attendance, uh, how we operate in our workplace, if we're willing to be held accountable to those things, should we not also want others to hold us accountable to how we steward our resources? Especially if the potential is that it would become our master. I would think so. I would think so. But the Bible doesn't just talk negatively about money. It also talks positively, uh, especially whenever it's used to honor God and advance the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15 says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Bountifully each one must give as he decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Does that not sound familiar to Exodus 25 that we just read? That God wants to give as one has decided in his own heart. It's the same thing. God wants a cheerful giver, even in the Old Testament. This isn't just a new thing. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So it doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter what job you have, what schooling you got. At the end of the day, God has provided the means by which you can do that and by which you've received things. Always, he provides the seed to the sower. So even if you have this amazing job where you've ascended at a rapid rate because you're some protege, at the end of the day, that is God's gift of talent in your life and he's providing the seed to the sower. We can't ever get to this place where we're the ones working hard. We're the ones doing all that we can. We're the ones making all of this happen. Even in the smallest moments. God is providing the seed to the sower. Okay, keep going. Verse eleven: You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. From from which, uh, through us, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So when money and resources are used to honor God and advance his kingdom, the Bible doesn't condemn money. It actually calls it an inexpressible gift. And mind you, this is coming from Paul, who has plenty of expressions. Paul is not afraid of saying what he thinks and feels, and he describes this moment as inexpressible and that God's grace is on full display. So if money can be used in a wrong way, and it can be used in a right way. And if money has a way of capturing the heart like nothing else, and God also decides to talk about the contribution of resources first before he ever gets to his ark, then what does this tell us about God? This leads me to point number one. God is in relentless pursuit of our hearts. The instructions for the tabernacle began with a heart check. God is first and foremost concerned with our heart. He began by requesting a contribution from the people and he asked the people to contribute their resources to make what would be his dwelling place among them. He also did not demand compulsory giving. He wanted those who were willing to contribute like we saw in verse two. God does not force your worship and he will not force your giving, but he does call for it. God isn't going to force you to worship or force you to give, but he will call for it. That's the only way that this offering was going to work, Is and that's if the people sacrificed, were willing to, with a cheerful heart. And we'll see later on that the people did so. They denied themselves and they followed the path God set for them. You see, the, these items that God, were, God asked from them were not even theirs in the first place. That's like this, what we're about to talk about here is probably the most gangster move by God in all of Exodus. It's amazing. Because God promised that he would not allow, in Exodus 3, he wouldn't allow his people to leave Egypt empty-handed. As in, you're going to be able to get all this stuff from the Egyptians, you're going to be able to get out of there scot-free. So he's going, to give, he's going to give them through the Egyptians all of this wealth. And as soon as they exit in Exodus chapter 12, we see that happen. The people are rescued from slavery with great wealth. And now in 25, God's saying, yeah, you know, the Egyptians that used to use all this stuff to worship their gods, now I'm going to take that stuff as well and make it worship me. It's incredible. It's an amazing moment that God provides these goods to his people and then asked them to return to him, so that way they will be used in worship for his own, his own name. So items that were used to worship Egyptian gods are now being redeemed to worship the one true God. It's amazing. The same holds true for us today. We give of our resources, but they are resources that God has entrusted to us. All that we have, God has entrusted to us that we might worship him. And sometimes our stinginess with our money, with our time, with our talents, they demonstrate that we struggle to believe this. You see, you could plug anything in there, really. Yes, this text specifically talks about money and resources, but you could plug in your time, your talents, the way you live your life, our lives ought to testify to the goodness of God by regular, sacrificial, and cheerful contributions to the kingdom advancing. And I'm not just talking about money, even though this, this text specifically does. Our lives must testify to the grace of God in, in everything that we have. And that could be time that you have, so sacrificing your own free time for the good of others. Your talents, sacrificing your abilities for the good of others and treasures, sacrificing your money and resources for the good of others and the good and the glory of God. So in talking about contributions first, God is relentlessly in pursuit of our hearts and calls for an offering from his people. However, this isn't an arbitrary offering he is calling for. It does have a purpose. We'll look at it here, uh, Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So here is the purpose of why he's taken a contribution. It's so that they would build a sanctuary so God would dwell amongst his people. Now, what made this place holy? Was it uh, the gold? Was it the silver? Was it the bronze? The onyx stones? The acacia wood? What was was it? Was that what made it holy? No. The place became holy because God's presence engulfed it. God made the place holy, not man. Once he made it holy, it was only to be used as God intended for, uh, for it to be used, which was the worship of God in, the, in his presence. So the scripture talks about God's presence being incredibly important in the life of the believer. And when you don't have it, there's an abundance of shame, abundance of guilt, and abundance of chaos. The, the best example of this is in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, Adam and Eve, it says that they hide in shame and they hide from the presence of God. And as they hide from the presence of God, they feel the shame, the guilt, and the chaos that has just been let into the world. But the Bible looks at the presence of God in an opposite light whenever you are in it. So Proverbs sixteen eleven says that when you're in the presence of God, you have the fullness of joy. John chapter 15 says that when you are in the presence of God and abiding in him, you have abundant life. Hebrews chapter 4 says that when you are in the presence of God, you experience a great mercy and great grace. You see, sin, if left unchecked, has a way of exiling us out of the presence of God. And the only solution for exile is for God to intervene. The only solution for exile is the presence of God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, Our increasing restlessness is caused by being away from God's presence. So what A.W. Tozer is talking about here is that as we go about our life, there is this longing inside of our heart, this angst inside of our heart that wants to be solved, and we, we just can't do it on our own. We can work harder. We can find new relationships. We can make things better. We can fix up our house. We can buy a new car. We can do whatever we want, but at the end of the day, the angst and eternal gap in our souls will never be solved. And the more that we try to solve it outside of Christ, the more restless we become. The more we lie at night, unable to solve the problem and knowing that there is one. This last Friday, me and my family went uh, to do what we call Family Fridays, where um, we went to Shank's Mini Put Put. Uh, it's super fun if you haven't been. It's in the Woodlands. It's a black light room, super cool. But afterwards, we went to Mod Pizza, and this is like one of those Mod Pizzas that is called like underneath it. It says Super Fast, and Honestly, I can't tell the difference between every mod, but apparently this is a super fast one. We get in there, and I remember—I remember this moment because my wife and I talked about it on the car ride home. I remember holding my daughter's hand, walking in, and we're laughing, we're talking about how fun Putt Putt was, and we're just having a good time. And as soon as we get in there, it is immediate chaos. I mean, there's a small counter, but there's like 20 workers back there all shuffling around. They're tossing food to each other. One person's got your order, and then another person does, and then another person does. You don't even know where to start. And as soon as you sit down, people are trying to get everywhere, crossing your path. You feel like you're in everybody's way. It was utter disruption and chaos inside of my soul. I mean, I personally felt like it was sensory overload, like I was, fr- my brain was fried. And that this was in five minutes of doing it. But this is what happens when we are not in the presence of God. It's this feeling of utter chaos, of restlessness, of busyness, that we can't push down and we can't get away. It doesn't go away. But God doesn't leave us in this chaotic exile. Instead, he spends the entirety of his narrative trying to fix it. The pursuit of God dwelling amongst us and the pursuit of God's presence amongst us is the narrative of the Bible In the Garden of Eden, at the very beginning, God walks with Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the garden and disrupts the presence of God. It disrupts the communion between God and man, and the rest of the Bible will be devoted to restoring it. So when you have the tabernacle and the temple like we're discussing today, it is a reminder that he's never left us, that he's always present, that he dwells among us. Christ descends down to earth and is literally the presence of God walking amongst us like in Eden, The church is born, and the Spirit is sent to indwell the believers, creating the bride of Christ, a reminder that God is forever with us. And then in the end, in Revelation, we see the new heavens and new earth, where we will forever commune and walk with God again, and Eden will be restored. It's amazing. The entire narrative of the Bible is God dwelling amongst his people and restoring what was broken. And up until now, the people of Israel have questioned constantly if God is still there. I don't know if you remember this uh, throughout the first 24 chapters, but we constantly see them saying, is God even still there? Is God even still there? Like when the bricks, went, when the Egyptians took away the straw that they were using to make the bricks and their labor got doubled, but their quota remained the same, they, they asked, we might as well just died. Is God even still here? They, and they, kept, they just keep doing this. And God said, not only am I still here, but I'm going to ask you to create a tabernacle, a place of worship, so that way you're constantly reminded that I am. If we are honest, even the most faithful among us get to places where we either feel that God has abandoned us, or we struggle to see the good and bad situations that God has promised. But I think the most obvious question to after that is, where is our ark? Where is our ark of the covenant? The people of Israel had this constant reminder right before their face, but where's ours? And that leads me to point number two. God has promised to indwell our hearts. We see this in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit and truth from whom uh, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. He dwells with you and will be in you because because of Christ dwelling amongst us, And the work that he did on the cross, which we'll get to here in a minute, we now have the Spirit, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit indwelling inside of you, the very presence of God inside what the Bible calls the temple of the living God. That's what our bodies are referred to in the scriptures. It's why Romans 12 will tell us that the way that we live our lives is a spiritual worship to God. That it's Jesus looks at the woman on the well and he says, Neither on this mount will you worship or on this mount, but in spirit and in truth. The spirit will indwell the lives of believers and you will worship with your life. The world doesn't get to experience this, which is why it seems so chaotic right now. If you look outside the church and if you look outside the Christian sphere and everything seems politically chaotic or relationally chaotic, It's because it is. The Spirit of God is not present amongst that. There's not the Spirit of God indwelling those that don't believe. So all they have and all they are bound to are sin and chaos. For us, the people of God, we get to experience the Spirit indwelling. And the Spirit doesn't just indwell our hearts, but it brings us several things. It brings us, like we read in Psalm 16, it brings us fullness of joy. That doesn't mean we're without suffering. It just means in the midst of it, we'll experience joy. We get to experience peace in the chaos. And it doesn't mean the chaos goes away. It just means in the midst of it, we'll experience peace. It means that we will not only be able to love others better, but we'll be able to receive love from others better. Because we're not relying on them in an unhealthy way. When they love us back, we can praise God for it. And we can, because of the Spirit, we also get to experience sober-mindedness and tough decisions because we're we're not banking on the outcome of hard times to save us or rescue us because we acknowledge that Christ rescued us, Christ saved us. And because of that, we can look at tough decisions and bad situations in our life and trust that God is good. But... Even though the Spirit of God indwells the believer, God's presence doesn't just dwell anywhere. It has requirements that we must meet. And we read this in the other portion of Exodus, verse number 9. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half be its length, a cubit and a half be its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make it on a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall be put into the ark, uh, into the ark, the testimony that I shall give you. It's the Ten Commandments. You shall make them a, make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, shall you make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Make the mercy seat, um, make one cherub on the one end and the one end, uh, one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat, shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their their faces to one another, Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark shall you put the testimony that I shall give you. For our visual learners in the room, uh, we're going to put a picture up behind us. This is what we are looking at. When we look at the uh, the tabernacle and uh, the beautiful array of materials that God is asking for, this is a, a close depiction of what you would have looked at. You would have looked at. And here you see the various yarns and threads that are used, the skins on the outside, the curtains that are thick with yarn and fine linen, the acacia wood that's used for the tabernacle in the back in the, in the most holy place. And you see the, as we go back, I don't know if you can tell by the picture, but as you proceed further and further back into, into the tabernacle, the more precious the metals get. So bronze at the beginning, you get the bronze altar. Then you get the silver, and then finally, in the most holy place, you get the gold. You get the gold because God is holy. And At the end of the day, when we look at where God has chosen to dwell, what do we learn about him? And it's that more than anything, he's holy. Again, we can often tell by what is important by someone, by what they talk about first. And here, when it comes to his dwelling place, the first thing he discusses is the ark, because this is where he will be. Now, this is, this is again, this is opposite to natural conversation, because most of the time when you talk about building a house for yourself, you say, man, I want this really nice brick house on this land, or I want a log house, or I want... You can name all kinds of things. I want a prefabricated metal building and do kind of a barnuminium thing. There's, you talk about the outside first. It's, it's the most natural thing to do, and then you start working on the inside. God doesn't do that. He starts on the very inside where he's going to be, and then he works his way out. The level of detail in his description of the Ark of the Covenant demonstrates that God is not approached casually or spontaneously. God is holy. He's not our homeboy. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not a genie that grants our wishes. He is not to be approached on our terms, but on his. He is the almighty, the creator, and the redeemer, and he's choosing to dwell amongst his people, and he's choosing to do it in a way that's free uh, for them to walk into that doesn't require them to do anything other than to have reverence. It's here at the mercy seat that we see that God would meet and speak to Moses. The Ark of the Covenant was the only furniture in the most holy place. Um, The presence of God would dwell particularly and powerfully in this one spot when he chose to descend. When God descended, he would be here at the Ark of the Covenant. And this kind of holiness required two transport poles to prevent any man from directly touching the ark. Because if they were to touch it, they would die. And there's a really, I wouldn't say great, but famous Old Testament story where the people of God are carrying the ark of the covenant. It starts to drop. He reaches out to grab it because he, I mean, naturally, it's valuable. It is important to them. They don't want it to hit, hit the ground. He reaches out, touches it. He dies. Now, I think that's a difficult story to think about because, I mean, can you blame the guy? The guy should have tried to pick up the most valuable thing that was there for the people of God. But for God, that meant that that man was trying to show that he had the ability to save God. And God did not want any man to think that he needed rescuing. You also had the mercy seat, and this is where the people of God would specifically meet with him. On the day of atonement, uh, later on, a high priest would come in once a year. He would shed the blood of a spotless lamb, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to show and atone for the sins of the people. And on top of the mercy seat, yeah, the cherubim of gold. They faced each other with their faces bowed towards it. Now, don't mistake uh, the angels; they are incredibly powerful. The cherubim are powerful. They are the angels that sit outside of Eden when we were kicked out with flaming swords to make sure nobody gets in. Angels are powerful, however, in the presence of God, they must bow like everyone else. There is also a few items that would be placed inside the ark, and we don't. We get a couple of them here, but we there are a few that we don't. Uh, we see this in uh, in Hebrews where they say that it uh, uh, contains the Ten Commandments, a pot with the manna in it, and uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And this is important because these, all three of these things were reminders of where God had taken them, that God had used their faults, their failures, redeemed them, and brought them out of slavery. God wanted to continually remind them by the things that were inside of the ark that he was worthy, uh, worthy of worship. So the holiness of God in this construction of the Ark must not go unnoticed. And if this amount of detail went into the Ark of the Covenant, what does that mean for us where God's presence dwells? If our body is the temple of the living God, and God's taking such great detail and instruction for this temple, what does that mean for us? This is point number three. God's holiness requires much of our hearts. You see, too often we live lives that reflect a casual approach to God. Either we just deem him unimportant in the moment until we actually need him, or because the Bible refers to God as our friend or merciful or gracious, etc. And those things are true. We must not forget those. We should be marked by them. But because they're there, we forget that he is first holy. He is first holy and set apart. And in the same way that God required much uh, for us to enter into his presence there, God also requires this reverent approach inside of our hearts as well. Our hearts must be set apart for God in all that we do. God isn't meant to be trifled with. God is meant to be worshipped. At the end of the day, the spirit of God in our hearts is meant to to have, we're meant to have reverence for it, we're meant to walk by the Spirit, and when we do so, we honor God in all that we do. Unfortunately, the presence of sin, both passive and active, things that we do and things that of our nature we don't even realize we do, doesn't, it doesn't allow us to simply waltz into the presence of God. God is holy, and these requirements are much for us to enter into his presence, but like we said at the beginning of this sermon, yes, God is holy, and yes, God has requirements, and God desires our hearts. And in order for us to fully commune with God, we have to be holy as he is holy. But he doesn't leave us alone. We see this in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. This is, he's talking to Moses at the mercy seat. He says, there at the mercy seat, there I will meet, you, meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is where God meets with us, meets with his people, is at the mercy seat. Notice, we meet with God at the mercy seat, not at the judgment seat. Incredible point to make. If you are a believer in Christ, yes, judgment will be had for those that are non-believers. But if you trust in Christ, God meets with you at the mercy seat. He meets with you there. And the key to entering God's presence—for one, it wasn't easy to do. As we read, you—you had to have at the Day of Atonement. You had to shed blood in order to enter the presence of God. That's the key to entering God's presence: is blood. The writer of Hebrews mentions this requirement, also points to Christ on the back end of it. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 19 through 26, it says this, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. So this is what it looks like. In order to enter into the presence of God, you had there had to be blood that was shed. It had to be sprinkled on everything. Everything had to be purified with blood. Verse number 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins does not happen without blood. This is why Romans 6, when it says the wages of sin is death... Something has to die in order to cover the penalty of sin. Verse number 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these same rites. So the copies of the heavenly things, the things on earth, point a picture to the things in the, in the heavens. And in the same way that the thing, things on earth had to be sprinkled with blood, so do the penalties for, heav- for, the, for the heavens as well. For thus it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus entering the Holy of Holies, entering heaven itself, he wasn't just the high priest. He was the great high priest to settle the score once and for all. And he didn't just sprinkle someone else's blood. He did his own. He shed his own blood and sprinkled that on the mercy seat, sat down on it and said, it is finished. It's done. No more do you need the rituals. No more do you need the rites. I am the right. I am the ritual. Come to me. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Literally, when you look at the words in the Greek, in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, when it says that God dwelt among us and that Christ walked among us, they are the same words. Jesus literally tabernacled amongst us. Jesus's body is the curtain ripped in two that brings us into the holy presence of God. Jesus is the great high priest that says once and for all that goes and intercedes on our behalf in front of God. And Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice, nailing it to the cross. It is done. It is finished. When you are a believer, and you trust in Christ for his salvation, you are a new creation. You're not a bad creation that's made good. You're a new creation. God doesn't take your bad heart and make it a good heart. He takes your bad heart and gives you a new one. When you trust in Jesus, you are a new creation. He gives you a new heart. There's one last story I want to tell before I close. It's this really amazing story about the Ark of the Covenant and really points to Christ's Atoning work on our behalf. That's in First Samuel, chapter four through seven. It's this great story where the people of Israel, they go to war with the Philistines and they, they attempt to use the Ark of the Covenant in a trifling way. So they want to take it, they want to put it at the front of the war and use it as kind of a pseudo-magic trick to trick the Philistines into running away. What doesn't work, and what ends up happening is the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and take it back for themselves. And they take it and put it inside of their temple to worship Dagon. And their thought was, fine, we're going to take their very presence of God. We're going to put it before our God, Dagon, and their God will have to bow to Dagon. Well, so they they do it and they leave and come back the next day. And the next day, their statue of Dagon is lying on the ground. And they come in, they lift the statue of Dagon up. They assume something just went wrong. They come back the next day, and not only was Dagon knocked back over, but his head was crushed and his arms were crushed. And this was God saying, there is no reason that I would ever bow to any God. It doesn't matter if my people are around. God is all places, all powerful, and I bow to no one. What's amazing about this story is not just the incredible power that God flexes in this moment. What's amazing about this story is that God, the very presence of God, the ark of the covenant took the penalty for what the Israelites deserved. The Israelites committed idolatry and wanted to use their ark of the covenant as a way of getting away with it. They should have been punished, they should have been exiled, but they weren't. The the ark of the covenant was taken away from the from the promised land and it was exiled. God Himself, the presence of God, was exiled away from the people and took the penalty for it. That is what Christ does for us. Instead of us being penalized and exiled away from God, Jesus chose to be exiled Himself to take on our penalty and give us a new heart. So, my question to you today, and I'll close with this Where is your heart this morning? When you when you sit and take inventory of your soul and your heart, where is it at? Is it is it busy? Is it restless? The busyness and restlessness that we talked about at the beginning of this, when that that kind of restlessness that happens when we step away from the presence of God. Do you feel that this morning? And if so, I, w- I would make a plea for you to run to Jesus. The very presence of God that dwelt among us. What's my second question would be: What's mastering you? Is there anything that's that you feel like is controlling your life in an unhealthy way? A, a real practical way to think about this, and I, I, I talked about this in the, in the nine o'clock as well. What do you sigh about, like in your life when something goes wrong? What do you go? <sighs> Those are, that's a real easy way to see what is starting to master the soul. So what happens when something comes your way? Do you sigh or do you plead with God? And my plea to you, brothers and sisters, friends, whether you're a believer or whether you're not a Christian in the room, is that you would run to Jesus. Jesus you would run to the free grace and mercy that's offered to you this morning. You would run to the very presence of God. And that you would be intentional about trying to live a life that's holy that's marked by him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we're just we're grateful that you have made a way for us. That you could have chosen to keep us exiled, but you didn't. You chose to draw us near to you. You spent the entirety of the history, of of our history here on earth, making a way for us to commune with you. So God, in the areas of our life where we are overly anxious, overly restless, overly busy, would would you meet us here? Would you bring peace to our soul, peace to the chaos, comfort where we need it? God, we just ask that you would help us throughout our week live lives that are marked by holiness. In your beautiful name we pray, amen.